Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. Uh, Pod Sequentialism is, of course, an outgrowth of the Pop Sequentialism traveling art exhibition of comic book art in the catalog that I produced in 2011. And uh, we are back online, which is nice. You can go to popsequentialism.com and you can reach me through the info at popsequentialism.com to contact me about this show. Uh, also brought to you by La Luz de Jesus Gallery and the Wacko Soap Plant Superstore. And my new endeavor out in Pasadena, which I call Gallery 30 South, which is a shop that specializes in my wife's jewelry, who's been a guest on the show. Adnohia is her line, and the Insomnia um, line is part of that Adnohia line. And the artwork that we put on the walls tends to be the type of art that you didn't know you liked. So if you like figurative work and you didn't think you appreciated abstract expressionism, this is the spot for you to learn, appreciate, um, and um, hopefully, you know, carry forward with. So this is kind of a really great uh, show. We've hit that point, I think, in the Pod Sequentialism podcast where... I'm contacting people that have been on the show previously and having them back on. And when we did Dr. DNA and had him back in, uh, it, which coincides with his, um, his secret agenda in traveling in and out of California secretly so as not to arouse suspicion of uh, government and medical entities that would uh, take his work, co-opt it as their own, and cause problems. Um, the good news is that I have back with me Luke Chu. Hello. And this is kind of Luke Chu Day here at Meltdown. Uh, Luke has just um, recorded an episode of Anime Attic. And since I knew he was going to be down here, I thought it'd be a great idea to talk to him about some other stuff that we've covered on the show in his absence since he was on the first time around. And he's just returning now from, from an exhibition in the Philippines not too long ago. Right. Yep. And he has a show up right now, which we're going to get out right at the front of this program, because if you're listening to it this week when it goes up, you'll be able to actually go visit it. And it's at Giant Robot 2 over on Sawtell in West L.A. Yep. It's a uh, group show that I curated called Friends with the Animals. And if you're familiar with my work, you'll know that I do. Um, I like to dabble with anthropomorphization. It's a hard word to say quickly <laughs> and um, I basically invited a bunch of artists some of whom do anthropomorphized work some of them whom don't to create something employing um, you know animals or whatnot mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah it's a it, the show is much better than I could have imagined you know we've got like such you know amazing painters like Travis Louie created a beautiful painting for mm-hmm. me Command Z has a great piece and a bunch of new people too like um, an artist that you had worked with uh, Mayuka Nakamura mm-hmm. has a couple pieces uh, she's you know those are odd yeah she's doing some crazy art and the I'm, cow girl is oh, amazing it's so weird the cow girl is great the it's literally a cow girl not not a cowgirl, not yeah. like a girl with a cowboy hat. But it's it's I I'm trying I'm encouraging her to stick with her crazy side because I think she does crazy art much better than she does say bushojo art, you know, yeah. or pretty girl art. And uh, so, so um, we're, we're going to talk about her a little bit because we just touched on her. So Mayuko Nakamura, who um, I have shown at La Luz de Jesus a few times, mm-hmm. uh, her work is probably closest that the next closest. Um, artist working in a style even remotely similar is going to be Trevor Brown. Yes. What Mm -hmm. she does is her work tackles 
very over-sexualized stuff. I, I know we're going to get the E on this episode, so we can just, I guess we can just say what we're going to say. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of her work embraces the idea of bukake, right. which is a very specific type of pornography in Japan. And of course, there's American bukake too. Yeah. But it was weird because the the face that she draws is generally a version of her own face. Yes. She's yes. a really sweet girl, mm-hmm. and she's recently married. She got married last year. Yep. And the work is is very polarizing. Yes. And I, too, encourage. I'm like, you know, I know you're not having much luck with this. Mm-hmm. I know that not a lot of people are buying it yet, but is when it reaches enough people's eyes, you're going to be known as the girl who does this disturbing stuff. And I recommend that you stick with it mm-hmm. because there's nobody else doing it. You've you've really found something original. You got and you have to run with that. I think when you, when you do that, I agree. And um, you know, like the last shows that she did with you guys, you know, she, I think she was thinking a little too hard yeah. about um her audience and you know wh- like who's looking at this, who's buying it, mm-hmm. you know, instead of being just kind of true to herself mm-hmm. and you know doing like like this really like you know like she did like did drawings where like you know girls with tits that worked like legs you know and like just like all kinds of unusual like stuff but you know at the same time you know seeing the success of artists like you know Anaji Kawasaki Mm -hmm. and you know so many of the girls who paint girls you know artists in especially in Los Angeles yeah you know it couldn't you can't help but like as a female as a woman artist want to like you know feel like you know like that seems to be the the path that people want us to go yeah you know but um you know i'd recently met um uh, an artist in the philippines uh kaya uh, kayo um Ka's first name yo is the last that's y e o and like you know her work is almost kind of like if you took the craziness of mayuko nakamura and combined it with the um naive kind of childish drawings of uh, Yoshito Manara, mm. you know, and um, I showed her, um, uh, Mayuko, her work, and, you know, she's, th- that girl, Kayo, is, like, doing the Asia, you know, art basil, like, yeah. not the outside stuff, but the inside basil Singapore stuff. basil, like, you know, yeah. yeah she, and she's, like, selling art for, like, huge prices, and yeah. um, I'm, you know, actually, she contributed a piece to the show as well and but um hasn't arrived yet but like you know just to kind of like encourage or like look, look you know there's there's definitely a thing for this and you know don't 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 be afraid just, just go for it and people will love it because you know we i i think as art fans mm-hmm. you know like when we see like someone just boldly going in there and like saying like you know what this is who I am, mm-hmm. you know, it's, there's a whole lot of crazy going on there, you know, you can't help but want to, like, share it on. It sometimes takes a while for people to catch on and, and, to, and to understand what they're looking at, too, mm-hmm. and whether you're talking about Joe Soren, whose first show, I think he sold one painting, mm-hmm. um, and actually didn't really start doing well until after his third show, mm. but you have to have a gallery that can support someone who doesn't sell paintings, right? which is... Not as as frequent as perhaps it once was. No, it's definitely a difficult you know thing, especially after the recession. Mm-hmm. You know, people a lot of galleries closed. A lot of mm-hmm. galleries you know um, are struggling. 
And I opened no. one. Congratulations. <laughs> I have I I I know remember you talking about it. I have yeah. not had a chance to visit it. I can't wait to you know go by there. I, you know I moved to San Gabriel, so you know Dude, yeah, we're in the same neighborhood. Yeah. And you know I live directly across the street, so my insurance is a little bit lower than it might otherwise be. Oh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but it's nice. a beautiful space and uh, you know we've we've we talked at length about the types of obstacles that that stand in people's way and we're going to bring this around away, and I hope it's not too ham-fisted, but I think that one obstacle, and you're obviously Asian-American artist, mm-hmm. and the giant robot showcases a lot of Asian artists, and actually I showcase a lot of Asian artists, but the you know, Ghost in the Shell is, is the elephant in the room. It opened a week ago. It did poorly. Uh, there was a lot of complaining about the casting in it, yes. and it opened up a, a scab over a wound that has been around for a long time. And what I am sort of at odds with is that I agree that I that it's it's unfortunate that the producers of the film didn't have the bravery to make a star and had to use star power to try to get people into the theater. And, and as it turns out, people were just relatively ambivalent to it. Right. But after the the failure of it, people who had been protesting and saying, oh, you know, it was the whitewashing, it was the whitewashing, and, you know, we protested and no one went and saw it and it made a difference. And then the studio said, yeah, that's what happened. You know, that there was all this whitewashing controversy and it affected our bottom line and, and it was a flop. And I think they're both wrong. I think it flopped because it wasn't a particularly great movie. Right. It came 15 years too late. Agreed. And there wasn't really a lot of money put into advertising it, honestly. Yeah. No. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I went to the movie actually opening night mm-hmm. uh, at the Arclight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you go to the Arclight in Hollywood, they usually have a display case yep. that has all the you know props from the movie. Mm-hmm. And you know what was in the center? Chips. Not... You know, chips like the movie. Chips. Yeah, the movie of the TV yeah, show. Yeah, not you know, and the um, what you call all the Ghost in the Shell stuff was off on the side, yeah. and I was just like, which uh, is beautiful costuming. Oh my gosh! And it's I mean, like, who cares about the Harley Davidson you know bikes that yeah. you know uh, the Highway Patrol uses in California? I mean, like those. Which is funny because they actually don't use Harleys; they use BMW. So uh, it's it's yeah. by having those in in the theater. If they did have Harleys, I then it I would mean, be like, funny. I, I was. Oh, I, I'm not sure what the night it was, oh. you know, I, but like I, <laughs> I, I bet know it was. that the I know the entertainment cops yeah. at least for a while were using Harley's, yeah. but now they, I think I mean I, I remember that point when I first moved here. Maybe they're using BMWs yeah. now, but um, like meanwhile, like those geisha costumes in Ghost in the Shell are just freaking gorgeous, yeah. you know. But um, you know. Okay, you know the whitewashing controversy. I get it as a. Uh, relative, my sister is an actor, mm-hmm. and um, in the beginning she was doing, you know, she did relatively well, and then, you know, uh, just things just kind of imploded on her, um, and she's been struggling ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it's it is unfortunate that you know Hollywood didn't have the balls to 
try f- to find someone new. I don't try, think we, I don't think we can really blame Hollywood though either because you saw that movie. How many opening studio credits were there before the movie started? Five, oh, six, right? And two, two of them, them are Chinese. Chinese. Yeah, one of them was Japanese. Right, and there were two American productions. Right, so you know. And this speaks to another another part of the the controversy that has been spreading out. You know, the people were against the Matt Damon movie. Was it The Great Wall or something? Right. Which is a Chinese production. I wasn't offended by that at all because it was obvious that Go- Great Wall was supposed to be a science fiction yeah. movie, and um, you know that a fantasy. You know, yeah, and yeah. it was actually produced by Chinese production yeah. companies who wanted Matt Damon. They wanted to work with a bona fide American star to yeah. to stake their flag in the ground and say we've arrived. Right. Now, one of the conversations that I've been having with people and so um I I spoke with my ex well, I didn't speak with my wife, but we we traded some messages on um on Facebook about this. You know, she had seen a post that I had had um I had linked to in the Hollywood Reporter had a roundtable with four actresses, and the headline said, four Japanese actresses address whitewashing and ghosts in the show. Mm. So I click the link and I read it. Two of those actresses are not Japanese-born. They're Japanese-American. Right. The other two actresses were certainly born in Japan, but they're not Japanese actresses in as much as they've never been in Japanese movies. Right. They are born-in-Japan actresses that act occasionally in American productions. Okay. So it's a very misleading headline. And it does say a little bit, for when you do click, it addresses the fact that, uh, that maybe that more than one of the people they're talking to are of Japanese heritage. But people pay attention to headlines. And I think that if you're a journalist, and even if you're an entertainment journalist, like The Hollywood Reporter, that you have a certain responsibility to be more forthcoming or at least not intentionally misleading. Mm-hmm. And then I thought about it a little bit more, and I, I thought, well, it shouldn't, their opinions should not be invalidated because they're not Japanese. So is that, was that the Hollywood Reporter's opinion, that they felt the need to have a misleading headline in order to justify the fact that they didn't bother talking to any Japanese actors or actresses. They didn't contact anybody in Japan. They didn't try hard enough to talk to, say, Yuki Kudo or, um, you know, any any number, Rinku Kikuchi or, you know, any any other actresses, Teo Okamoto, you know, who I think would have been fantastic in, in the role in Ghost in the Shell. But then I thought about something else, and, and bear with me on this. That when when having this this conversation with with Max's wife and and we used to do a lot of translating of anime and manga like mm-hmm. we did a lot of the kind of higher budget projects of Japanese films that came into town right. and it was because our attention to detail and translating took into consideration things like the era of the film and the use of idioms, mm. which as a translator is a really difficult thing to nail down. And, and if you have a producer who has a really good idea about what they want, then you have a lot of back and forth and you can say, well, there's two ways you can say this. Normally, when translating you know, anime, mm. the producer doesn't care. You know, Their, their next session mm-hmm. is for a Clorox bleach commercial. Right. You're in right. their studio for the time that's booked. They want you in and out as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And so um, we would sit and we would help with the lay-in of subtitles. And, and sometimes when, with commentary tracks and uh, dub tracks, we would supervise those sessions. Mm. We're not being paid well for them, so we stopped doing them. Right. And the budgets went away, so those jobs went away probably. Mm-hmm. So um, with that as a background, her point of view was, well, I'm Japanese, and in 
the Japanese film industry, which she still works in occasionally. Works more in music, but she still works in Japanese film mm-hmm. or Japanese television occasionally. Right. And she said, um, well, in Japan, we love when Japanese products reach a point where American Hollywood films get made that star Hollywood actors because it's a justification of that Japanese product right. as being so important that it is it has hit that the big time so to speak. Well, okay, you know, okay, addressing the Hollywood Reporter article mm-hmm. um, saying you know Japanese actors, uh, some two of whom were Japanese who worked in America and two of whom were um, just. Japanese Americans. Yeah. Um, I think that is the perception of Asians in Hollywood. And I find that to be more offensive Agreed. than whitewashing. You know, it's like um, like the thing that I always point to that I think is a much bigger deal was when they cast a Guatemalan actor to play an Egyptian. Right. You know, in as Apocalypse, in Age of Apocalypse, which, which it, to me says all brown people look the same. They're not going to notice. And... No one made a big stink about it because people were so much more hung up on the Scarlett Johansson thing. Unfortunately, there is it, there is truth to that, and that's a bummer. And no, it, it is a bummer. But you know, I mean, like, um, would I? You know, if Makoto uh, was played by just an Asian actor, I I think that would have been, you know, whether they are Chinese, Vietnamese. Korean, you know, Japanese, whatever, mm-hmm. it probably would have worked just as fine if, you know... Promotionally. You know, uh, if the issue was ethnicity. Mm-hmm. But see, yeah. the, I, and I would find that to be a terrible dereliction of the, um, the, the plot of the film, and the Japanese would have hated it. So that well, that's where, especially well, that, that's the thing. Like, you know, the I think Japanese people, J- Japanese uh, from Japan, mm-hmm. are used to this idea of their, you know, creations when brought to a an American an American audience mm-hmm. will get a very thorough whitewashing. Yeah, whether it's Godzilla. Yeah, you know, like you know the Godzilla. Both of the Godzillas from both of the American movies have been reinterpreted and look nothing like the Toho. Right. Even Shin Godzilla. Yeah. Which is the most unique Godzilla of all the Japanese Godzillas. Mm-hmm. Still feels like a Toho Godzilla. Yeah. Meanwhile, the 2014 Godzilla feels nothing like a Godzilla. It's like weird. And mm-hmm. you know what? I'm really kind of. And the, Roland, the Roland Emmerich one is almost like it's like a dinosaur. Right. It's yeah. T Rex. And what I'm a little bit nervous about is the fact that, like, at the end, I have not seen the Kong Island movie, but I know at the end of it, they kind of hint at that. The fact that they plan on bringing Mothra, King Ghidorah, and uh, Rodan to the um, American Godzilla franchise by showing these through cave a pa- con- through Kong, uh, yeah, yeah, they had a cave painting wall mm-hmm. uh, where they um, showed like you know these you know other kaiju and you know they are um, obviously King Ghidorah, King you know Rodan and Mothra. But um, I don't know. Well, you know, I'm I'm scared to see how American um, 
you know, um, movie house, um, you know, directors or, or whatever are going, or production designers are going to design those characters. Right. Um, but, and, and you know what, they, the Japanese and, or Asians, when they see their licenses being, you know, reinterpreted in America, probably feel a certain degree of pride, yeah. you know, in it. But and then they can also that that re-energizes their ability to make their own franchises locally, generally speaking. Right. So it it creates more jobs. It's it's better mm-hmm. for the communities that these come from. But there's also one other thing that that um that my ex-wife had said was that the Japanese are used to American versions of of Japanese movies being terrible, anyways. Right. Well, you know, honestly, Japanese, you know. Movies in general are are pretty bad, you know, because so. they don't have budget too. And that that's another thing I want to talk about too. So, right. when we when we compare, say, a the Japanese movie market to the American movie market, it is an unfair comparison because television mm-hmm. is a much bigger industry in Japan than film is. Right, and high budget films in Japan are often coming with budgets that would be less than a made-for-television sci-fi channel right. production. Right. I mean, and that's a big-budget Japanese film. Right. So if you're looking at a film that costs, say, a $30 million film is a pretty high-budget film in Japan, mm-hmm. whereas in America, it's it's not a high-budget film. It's a comedy. costs $30 million. Right, right. And so they've also grown accustomed to less sophisticated special effects, but what my what my 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 current wife, my I can I can't say I Kennedy because my 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 ex wife's name was I as well, mm-hmm. but um you know my wife brought up yesterday when we were talking about this the fact that Japanese audiences want to see all the money on screen, so they don't pay stars a star salary, mm. you know, and the reason that people take films in Japan may be related to I think this property is culturally significant and it needs somebody of my abilities or the movie's not going to be as good so I'm going to take this role at less pay. Mm. Um, that mingled with the fact that certainly the the salaries of Japanese actresses nowhere near what the salaries of American actors can be um, or the top Chinese actors or the top um, Bollywood actors. Right. Because their industry is so small. Yeah, but, you know, I think the thing is, is that, like, you know, okay, sure, the money isn't quite there, but, like, the I, I think what it really is is the writing isn't there, you know? Um, the Attack on Titan movie wasn't terrible because of the effects i mean though they were not good mm-hmm. it was because the writing was so it carries bad. you through and oh it's terrible yeah it's okay terrible. I, I haven't seen yeah, it it's terrible i you know i, I know saw, some people that love that movie but um, i just haven't seen it i love the anime i love the anime i love the manga i read the manga every month it comes out i uh, you know tonight i'm going to be watching episode 2 of season 2 yeah but the thing is is that like which is you know, coming out tonight, but yeah. like, you know, the, but the thing is, is that like, you know, just the translation from, you know, even like these, like, like movies that come from manga, like Gantz, uh, Gantz is one that came out, um, a little while ago. Um, it starts off, you know, kind of driven, like strong because it's based on the manga, but then 
you know, it just loses steam and flops. Mm-hmm. And then when they come up with the sequel, it's even worse. Death Note. Death Note was a perfect example of an amazing J- Japanese license that if they just stuck with the anime, the the, 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 the script of the manga, mm-hmm. it could have been brilliant, mm-hmm. but they didn't. Right. You know, um, but the thing is, uh, I, I think the only... Japanese movies that I see that are generally really good are period pieces like yeah. 13 Assassins or yeah. Ron, you know, and and maybe some dramas. Like I just saw this one uh, Chinese, Japanese um, kind of mo- uh, movie. I think it's called like Scoop. It's basically like a Japanese paparazzi kind of story. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really, really fun and really dramatic and, and it was good. But well, that, that raises a good point. So, um, my wife was also talking about this. She said that Japanese audiences are used to when American movies redo the material of being completely redone. So there is no element that sticks somehow to Japan. Mm. So, you know, um, Shall We Dance? Okay. Shall We Dance gets remade as an American movie with an American cast. And if you saw the American movie and had no idea that the source material was, was Japanese, there's nothing in that movie that tells you that. Mm. Um, you know, you can say the same of... Here, here's a really interesting scenario because this is a film that's been remade about three or four times. Um, there was a Korean film called The Crazy Family mm. that resulted in a Japanese movie which actually launched the actress Yuki Kudo when she was a teenager in mm. Japan, okay. which became an art house hit in the UK and in the US. Mm. And then um, Mike remade it and um, remade it as The Happiness of the Katakuri and changed it significantly and went back a little bit more to the Korean original film. Mm-hmm. And there was talk for a long time about them remaking that as an American movie and doing it as kind of like a a silly Tim Burton-esque meets um, Evil Dead type of film. And it went to a certain point and then it just kind of disappeared. And it either became a completely different project that did get released or, or it went no place. Mm. But that with some products, especially... Licenses. When I say products, some licenses that come out of um, manga that become anime, there is a much more inherent Japanese-ness to them because you see Japanese signs in the background. They take place in Tokyo neighborhoods. And so we got on the subject of, well, what's going to happen when they start doing live action films of Studio Ghibli stuff? Mm. And it, and we came to this kind of consensus and we talked to a few other friends and they all sort of had the same opinion that and we can we can we'll go back into this a little bit, but that with um, Miyazaki product, every girl in the Miyazaki universe, they're all essentially the same except for three, mm-hmm. and even two of those three still look like every other female lead in the Miyazaki universe sure. are clearly European. That um, Hayao Miyazaki has has been drawing the same girl that he's been obsessed with, who is from Bavaria. He's been drawing her for years. His first big break animating for in Japan was for the Heidi television series. Right. Adapted from the Alpine character of Heidi the Orphan. Right. And that character grown up is the lead character in every movie. You can change the name of the film and it's the same girl with three exceptions. And I think if they made any of Studio Ghibli's product as an American movie, you could get away with them being completely European or American, except... For a spirited way, which is a very Japanese thing. Yes. With um, Totoro. Totoro. Mm-hmm. 
Totoro, you could maybe get around it by having a any small child just living in Japan. Right. Um, and, but that is definitely one of the two. And Princess Mononoke. Right. And Princess Mononoke is a fantasy film, and I think you could get away with it, but I think that there is something very inherently Japanese about it, not just the name. Right, right. No, it's, uh, no, definitely, Princess Mononoke is definitely feels Japanese, mm-hmm. um, though you could probably put it in Europe if yep. you mix it up a little bit. Um Agreed. Yeah, I agree with those three. Um, but Kiki's delivery service, Nausicaa uh, definitely has like a European kind yep. of quality to it. Yeah, like a French science fiction. Mm-hmm. And yeah. certainly, you know, Kiki's delivery service. Yes. Kiki yep. is the woman who gives Kiki milk is not a Japanese woman. No, it's definitely not. And although they are making a, li- they have made a live action of it. I think, yeah, for Japan. television. Yeah. yeah, it's not very good. Yeah, and you know, there is, you can go forward and backwards throughout the catalog um, with any of the human character films uh cats return not necessarily japanese probably european mm-hmm. um not even a, a, a miyazaki film but a studio ghibli mm-hmm. um you know laputa laputa the european kids it takes place in bavaria right. porco rosso it's an italian name yeah, it's a t- italian pig <laughs> you know yeah. so it's like i think that um what has happened is that a lot of the people who are really really upset about ghost in the shell and it not going to an asian lead they're bringing a lot of their own baggage to it, and that's I not agree. to say that that baggage is invalid. Because I, th- I think there are, there are reasons that justify the casting of of uh, an Asian lead. We'll say we won't even say Japanese. We'll say Asian, right? Which I think, would, of course, would would drive the Japanese crazy. crazy. <laughs> but um, that I feel like it's better to have a non-Japanese person in the role because there's a ghost in the shell. And the shell is not the spirit of that person. So that by it being not Japanese, it's almost better uh, you know, science ar- fiction. The argument people will make to make that I've, I, I've encountered is that like, oh, it's, you know, a cyborg body. It's quote unquote universal. But the thing is, is that my argument is, is that that universal is all, you know, subjective right you know and if you look at a if you just type in the words japanese cyborg you know right now and look at images they look distinctly asian yeah and because that is what universe but they're trying to go for quote unquote a universal look yeah and but that just happens to be what universal look is, looks like in in japan well, and well you certainly know, you, know. you know that the the world is getting more asian you know the, the numbers are the numbers there. the numbers yeah. are on around around the Asian side and and I mean population not necessarily influence and there's when people address whitewashing they're they're tackling four or five other issues and they're putting it under one umbrella and I don't think it's necessarily good to do that right certainly there is um, a difference between respectful treatment and objectification um, certainly there is a difference between whitewashing and white savior complex right. Um, which they could definitely throw at the Matt Damon movie if they wanted to, even though it is a Chinese production. Right. Um, and I think that um, where it's important and where I think that people who are upset by this are upset and why they're very valid in in the way they feel is that if you're an Asian-American kid like you mm-hmm. and you grow up reading manga mm-hmm. or and you're like, hey, this is a thing that comes from my culture. Right. Even though... Maybe you speak only English. Right. So you get the translated version in English of this 
Japanese source material. Right. And you look at it and you look in the manga yeah. and you can identify with the people drawn in the manga who are generally drawn much more Asian looking than what finally becomes the movies. Right. Nine times out of ten. Right. So you grew up around this mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, you know, all my friends have Spider-Man and Superman. They have that other stuff mm-hmm. that they grew up that, that make them, there's these people that look like them that have superpowers and do extraordinary things. And I don't really have that, mm-hmm. but I have this, I have this manga and, and then anime. And it's like, you make a cultural leap from the manga to the anime without addressing the way that even the creators in the country that produce the manga have decided to make it look a little bit different. Right. And we can talk about the fact that that comes from Betty Boop, but we won't. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that and we'll move on. Okay. It does, but we're not going to address it. Mm-hmm. Um, that when it becomes known that that property has now been picked up in America, where you live and you have grown up, mm-hmm. you have a certain amount of pride connected to that. Agreed. That yes. says, hey, this is the recognition of something that came from, you this know. the recognition of something that I have an intimate connection with. Right. You know, and. Um, and then when it becomes somebody and then it's something else or that, that some element, any element of that is taken away. Right. It's very, very easy and very justifiable to become completely and irrationally upset by that change. I, I well, you know, I mean, like, let's just state, you know, a fact. Asians in popular culture are rarely represented. Okay, sure. In, in, Ameri- in American pop culture. In, in American pop culture. Yeah. Sure, fresh off the boat. It's kind of beginning to happen, mm-hmm. but still it is so minuscule mm-hmm. and so rare that like when these opportunities do come, you know, it feels like a slight against Asians. And I can see how that would feel like a slight. And And whether or not it's intended as a slight, I can see how it is felt as a slight, and I can see why people get upset about it. And I think that what that should make us all appreciate is the need to produce more independent content that pushes more diverse cultures to the surface. Did you happen to see um, uh, the Netflix series um, 13 Reasons Why? No, Thirteen Reasons Why is adapted from a young adult novel about suicide, and, it, and the the it takes place. It opens that um, the main character of of the story, uh, one of the main characters of the story, mm-hmm. is a teenage girl who's committed suicide, mm-hmm. and she's left behind a box of tapes that explain why the thirteen reasons why she's taken her life, and it addresses thirteen people in her life. Oh. And so the the narr- the the voice of she's sort of the narrator but the um not an omniscient narrator but um it follows this boy who obviously had a big crush on her and he's wondering why he's on the tapes like he has and he's not listening to them as quickly as apparently everybody else who's gotten these tapes beforehand has uh. and the kids try and keep it a secret well in the book there's nobody really um expressed as being any particular ethnicity. The great thing is that the property was purchased by Selena Gomez. Mm. And Selena Gomez, as executive producer, had them cast almost all of the roles outside of the girl, the lead girl who kills herself and a couple of other characters. There's a lot, not all, but th- there's a really high population of Asian characters, some playing quite against type. One of the, um, one of the jocks... 
really good looking big dude, the biggest guy in in the show, mm-hmm. the biggest jock, is an Asian American kid. Mm. Um, the there is the kind of a studious Asian girl, mm-hmm. and uh, her parents are uh, a gay couple that's married and adopted an Asian baby, mm. and there's quite a few people of color in the story. Mm. When you watch, it's extremely well done. I cried like a like a baby when I when I watch. I binge watched it and and the, o- the other day. It. It's it's heartbreaking. Okay. Uh, the but it, you realize, wow, you know, number one, there's no shortage of very talented Asian Americans to fill these roles. Right. And when I talked, did a whole show on you know the actor that plays Glenn on The Walking Dead and how I think he's going to be the next Keanu Reeves. Mm. Yeah. The the absence is in a single demographic. Why it's tougher for Asians is because if you're a Latina or Latino, you speak Spanish. So if something is made in Spanish for the Spanish-speaking market, whether you're from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, South, South America, where they don't speak Portuguese, or Spain, that product is for you, and you can embrace it as your language, and there's going to be certain elements in the culture that, that make it similar, even though each of those have their own little interesting different aspects. Mm-hmm. If you are African-American and you want to see African-American entertainment, you can. There are movies that are produced, directed, and star predominantly African-American performers, Mm -hmm. and it feeds a really specific cultural need, a a joined sense of humor that grows out of the tradition of um, Christian blacks in America. Mm Mm-hmm. And you've obviously got all those uh, Tyler Perry films that do extremely well. And now you've got um, Key and Poole, who are making incredible films. Yes. And supposedly, he's going to be directing Akira. Are you serious? That's what I heard. All right. (laughs) It it could be interesting. It could be terrible. Uh, How it's handled is going to be a really, really big thing. But again, if you are African-American, you have niches. If you're Asian American, it depends on whether you're Japanese American, Korean American, or Chinese American, right. just exactly how much product there is for you. Right. right. So there isn't one demographic. When I ran Panic House Entertainment, we released only Asian titles. That was our specialty. And every time I released a film, I had to target a different specific yeah, but, audience. but the thing is, is that like, okay, you know, we're talking about, you know, fobs basically. Right. You know, what about Asian Americans, you know, as an, as Asian Americans, you know, Japanese, Korean, Chinese, Vietnamese, uh, you know, Laotian, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, those, those individual ethnic groups have you know, their own deep, rich, you know, ethnic histories and, you know, Mm -hmm. whatnot. But you know what? In the eyes of the rest of the society, they're one thing. Right. Asian. Yeah. And as such, most of them have grown up with very similar life experiences dealing with non-Asian people. Correct. And, you know, look, I don't care if you're Japanese, 
Korean, Chinese, Vietnamese, you've all been called a chink at least once in your life. Mm. You know, so it's, um, you know, that's just the, you know, the way it is. And so, you know, creating, you know, entertainment that caters not to specific Korean, Chinese, Japanese, whatever, but caters to Asian Americans is not as hard as you think. And you know what? It's slowly happening. Mm. It is slowly happening. You know, Fresh Off the Boat, obviously, is a story about, you know, Eddie, what's his name? Huang, Taiwanese, Taiwanese, American. You know, and like, uh, but like, it's a story that is kind of a little bit more catered to an Asian American experience rather than a Taiwanese American experience. Or at least right. I would imagine. I have not seen an episode, but um, I'm sure that in order to create a to make it so that it has more universal appeal, it is you know a little bit more things are pro- painted with a broader brush. Okay, you know? that, that's a really good point. We're going to take a break and we're going to hear from one of our sponsors very quickly, and then we're going to be back and we're going to expound on how to unify multiple niche groups Mm -hmm. as a general um, monetizable audience without losing sensitivity to the cultural peccadilloes. So Mm -hmm. 60 seconds and we'll be right back at you with Luke Chu. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy, and I have back with me Luke Chu, good friend of mine. Nice. Thanks. World-renowned artist. And we, we were talking about the differences in cultural desensitivity. What do I mean, because I think whitewashing is, is a really specific thing, and it's not necessarily whitewashing, but that when products or licenses that begin their life as Asian product, and specifically we were talking about Ghost in the Shell, so Japanese, mm-hmm. but how that is different than and the the idea of whitewashing and the idea of um, of diversity can sometimes be different things mm-hmm. uh, or the the worries raised by one don't necessarily speak to diversity but speak to whether something is monetizable right and that the the offense felt by many Asian Americans about the missed opportunity in celebrating a beloved manga, well, a manga character, but really beloved anime character mm. is lost when they cast a, a Hollywood star. And there was a lot of, a lot of gripe and we, we've addressed that and we, we've talked yeah. about it, but how that the way that it's different in the way that it's felt about in Japan versus the way that it's felt about in America America. is that there is a joined Asian experience in America. Mm -hmm. As you pointed out before the break that Asian Americans as a large cluster do face the same type of racism together. Right. But culturally they have very different sensibilities depending upon what generation they are. Absolutely. So if you are the the son or the daughter of immigrants, your connection to your culture is going to be very different than if you are the fourth generation. Mm-hmm. And but that goes the same for all groups. Yes. You know. Um, and I did compare actually to the Irish American experience. Yes. You know that the way that some Americans feel more Irish on certain days of the year that shall remain nameless Mm -hmm. than the Irish feel (laughs) is a point of contention, you know, for people who are actually from Ireland. And so when, you know, Japanese from Japan 
have a really different sensibility about how their culture is, is absorbed than do people the same age as they who are one generation out, who are two generations out, who are three generations out, who are four generations out. But you raised a really, really valid point. And as we we're talking about connecting to the sensitivity to that emotion, that it is a very personal thing. It is a very personal connection. And what has happened, what I think is kind of extraordinary about this movement that developed online against Ghost in the Shell, well, I don't necessarily think that the reasons that were given were justified. The fact that it formed a movement to me mm-hmm. is incredible. And it's important and it needs to be paid attention to. And why I think it was actually a really good thing that Scarlett Johansson got the role is because it flopped. And if Teo Okamoto had been the star of Ghost in the Shell and Ghost in the Shell had flopped, who'd have gotten blamed for the flop? Absolutely. Would they have said, oh, it was, you know, the script was bad? Yeah, if only they had like a, a bigger name, you know, whatever. Exactly. Right. And then how long is it before you get another Asian lead? In a movie. Agreed. So I think a really beautiful kind of set of circumstances is lined up here. It's a funny kind of contradiction. It's funny that like it works out that way, but I completely see your point on that. You know, going kind of going in a different direction. One of the things that I'm kind of drawn to bring up is this stereotype about Asians that is definitely rooted in truth. And I kind of am inclined to believe that this is the reason why it's taken so long for Asians to have a presence in popular culture. And that is the fact that the reason, one of the reasons why I think Asian people are so easily accepted into the fold of American culture is because we have, we, we do our best or traditionally do our best to stay as far away from the limelight as we can. Yeah. You know, it's uh, like, you know, um, if someone is yelling at us rather than, you know, raise our fist and complain, we, you know, do our best to exit, to, to get as far away from the conflict as we possibly yeah, can. Yeah, there's a, there's a non... Stereotypically. Stereotypically, there's, there's a non-confrontational aspect to what's considered to be high culture in Asian society. Right. That you are above entering into a conflict. Right. And so the polite thing to do is to walk away as peacefully as possible. Mm-hmm. Now that brings up two other things and, and two other things that are possibly stereotypical mm-hmm. and things that are addressed very differently in Asian film than in American film. Mm-hmm. And that's the view of masculinity in the two societies are very different. Oh, yeah. What is seen as being a very macho thing in American culture, mm-hmm. if we have a culture, uh, uh, I think we in post-European do. culture, we'll say, right. that um, then it is in Asia. And so when you, a lot of Asian, especially a lot of Hong Kong actors mm-hmm. that were starting to transition in the early 90s into... Um, budgeted American movies, and as the directors were the first people to come over, people like John Woo, Chewie Hark, Ringo Lam, and they started making films in English, mm-hmm. um, and the latter two just returning back to China where they could basically do whatever they wanted to right. and didn't really care about making American money. Right. John Woo and, and Terrence Chang live here. Mm-hmm. That bringing stars over was difficult because their stars 
had high-pitched voices. Mm. So Simon Yam couldn't make it in America the way that Cha Yun-fa made it in America. Cha Yun-fa has a much deeper voice. Right. And so the there are different cultural symbols and and I, you know it's funny because i was actually watching a podcast um it's called i think it's um adv podcast um uh, basically it's these two ex, um expats one from south africa one from america who live in china now and mm-hmm. one of the things they were talked about was um in china specifically in china the the government was trying to um rebel against the um kind of unusual things that are happening to masculinity in Asian pop culture, specifically like in K-pop, um, uh, where like androgyny, the almost androgynous nature of it. But, you know, Americans, specifically Americans, I think have a, a, a very specific idea of masculinity. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but that, and to the point where they believe that that is a universal masculinity. And it's not, it's, Definitely yeah. not, and um, I mean you can look at European movies. Um, look at the the European leads. Uh, French film actors are not traditionally good looking males mm-hmm. by American standards at all, and so there's often very little crossover. Right, that people who become very popular in France do not become big stars in America, mm-hmm. and if they do, it's because their performances are so good. Right, that. And they're not cast as, as, you know, the attractive male lead necessarily. You know, Gerard Depardieu has made quite a handful of, of American films, but he's not necessarily the romantic lead. He is in Green Card, which is the first movie that brought him to America after he was nominated for an Oscar for Cyrano de Bergerac. Mm-hmm. But he was a comedic act. He, he was cast as a comedic actor or as um, a tough or as, you know, some other niche thing, not as a romantic lead because he's considered unattractive. Right, right. You know, and Mm. the man who was probably considered the sexiest man in France in the 1970s was Serge Gainsbourg, Mm. who is what Americans would probably call funny looking. Mm. Mm. And so, yeah, you're right, that the the standard that Americans have of what is considered masculine and even what is considered good looking Mm. is drastically different, thank heavens, across the globe because I'd be single. (laughs) But um, if if the standard of of American male beauty is such that it is, were the same in Japan, I I would not be married. Well, you know, and then what also happens is, you know, the American culture did uh, an amazing job at demasculating the Asian males. Yes. Uh, Starting with the fact that, like, you know, what are the traditional... Asian jobs from you know the early 20th century they were they co- made they cooked in restaurants and they did laundry manservants two, two yes. jobs that are traditionally feminine in American culture in American culture yeah. so you know it's um you know uh, you have all these things that basically were subconscious I mean like obviously they don't have the 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 palpable horror of slavery and yeah. you know and, and you know what but they are still things that subconsciously work against Asian Americans um and have taken you know so many decades to finally kind of start 
slowly un- undoing, you know. Do you think a lot of that is, is grows out of that wait your turn type of thing? You know, that there were other cultures that weren't white that were in America that were fighting their fight. And, you know, from a good portion of the late 19th century well into the, the middle and beyond, and I think we're still in that fight of the civil rights movement for African Americans mm-hmm. and, um, and for people with a descendancy to the African diaspora. So not necessarily African Americans, but you could be a black European. You could be, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even to a certain extent, uh, not that you see too many um, Native Australian Aboriginal people who are very dark-skinned in America, right. but you certainly do see certain Southeast Asians who are very dark-skinned, right. who are seen as, by certain ignorant sections of the population, as being interchangeable with African Americans because of skin color. And that there was a the part of the Black Power Movement and the strength of the Black Power Movement in the 1960s was to take this thing which was thrust upon them this black this idea of blackness mm-hmm. um, the 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 idea that this was something that separated men that skin color separated men that they owned up to it not owned up to it that's a ter- I strike that from the record they owned it and decided to move forward with that as an empowering thing rather than as a shackle and in a way that has also caused problems because it has embrace the idea that there are differences in skin color and certainly because the culture is the way that it is and because america is from a post-european society and because we have such a long um, dark history with slavery Mm -hmm. that these are things that are in our psyche that we've grown up around it we're used to it and that there's a position of privilege and power that white people have over other people in this country that didn't get corrected and it only started to get corrected in the last 150 years or so. So that do you think that other people have to kind of wait in line? Like we're seeing it now with with gay rights, that there's a huge division now between people that are trying to connect the gay rights movement to the American African-American civil rights movement mm-hmm. and people in that camp saying, hey, look, being gay isn't the same as being black. You know, it's like. We've we've gone through this every day of our lives because we can't not be black. People see us as black, whereas you have the ability to not be seen as what you are. And so there are these weird divisions that among people who who don't have the upper hand in that they aren't in power, in power, weren't discriminated against, that every other section has had to kind of fight its own fight and that that has led to other people that would normally be united not necessarily stepping up you know that you know that i mean that brings up uh, an interesting point and um i the one thing that kind of came to mind to me was like you know the idiom of you know the the nail that um that's you know sticks up above the rest gets Gets hammered yeah you know and i think that that is a common you know, mindset to Asian people, not necessarily Asian Americans, but you know, more so Asian immigrants, mm-hmm. and it's their children mm-hmm. that are who embrace a more American idea. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes and, at the insistence of their parents. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, who are you know? I mean, I I've met more and more Asian first generation Asians like myself who don't speak, you know, 
uh, Chinese, mm-hmm. you know, because they're at, uh, in the sense of their 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 parents and family, who, you know, they want them to integrate. They want them to become a part of the society mm-hmm. and are afraid that, like, you know, uh, weighing them down with, you know, their own their 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 their, their own personal ethnic baggage, mm-hmm. you know, would simply be a burden to them. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it's uh, I think that like you know. Um, I think a lot of that is the reason why it's taken so long for, you know, Asian Americans to finally, like, you know, begin to find their voice. Mm-hmm. You know, another, th- I think a reason why very there's little complaining is because, I mean, like, you know, um, Asians have, you know, been able to, through, by being, not having attention brought onto them, you know, been able to, I guess, you know, do their focusing on studies and getting on uh, schooling and education and work their way up into the um, Six, generally you know, successful well, career position. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's uh, so I mean, like, what do Asian people have to complain about? Well, you know, I mean, I've got plenty to complain about, you know, because of the crap that I grew up, you know, experiencing. And a lot of it comes out in my art. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot and a lot of it manifested into my own self-destructive behavior that mm-hmm. I struggled with for, you know, uh, after college, mm-hmm. you know. but And people um, can go back and listen to our prior <laughs> podcast with Luke Chu where, where we really dove into that. And it yes. was kind of like... Uh, we went deep heavy. on that, yeah. Well, a lot of, I experienced a lot of heavy-handed shit, you yeah. know. But the thing is, is that, like, I think that, you know, um, you know, the, the, the things that I want, can't complain about, I feel are minor in comparison to what a lot of ethnic minorities are dealing with. You know, though, but at the same time, though, I, you know, this, this is something that I've said a couple of times, you know, before, and I'm, I'm happy to share it on this podcast. And that is that on 9-11-2001, uh, something, you know, the, the events of, you know, that morning, you know, really were almost a bit of a godsend to me because what it did was it took what was probably going to be the next bad guy in to the United States, a.k.a. China, China. and refocused his attention toward the Middle East, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, that, that's exactly what I addressed, though. Yeah. That's about those divisions between the not-white segment of America mm-hmm. having to take turns ducking out of the spotlight mm-hmm. in order to succeed. Right. right. And um, and not helping, not unifying, because it's still, even though at this point in, in America, I don't know if we're there yet, but we're certainly soon going to be there, where the portion of the population that is Caucasian is going to be less than 50%, mm-hmm. uh, that that would mean that all other quote-unquote minorities will form a single majority if that's possible. I, I wonder about that. Yeah, and, uh, and I think that, that thus far in this country's history, it has proven not to be something that happens. Like, even if Caucasians make up, you know, 40% of the American population, they will still probably have the majority as a group, group of, as a unified group group of Caucasians. Which and with, with a representation. Yes. And I mean, when, when, when we talk about power, and I think that where, where things are, can very easily be misconstrued is that regardless of whether, like you say, there's only 40, if, if we hit a number, it's 30%. Right. That 
will that really change the fact that 85% or 89% of Congress is white? Right. You know, that the president will probably be white. White. Right. Um, You know, that in positions of power, will that change? And the only way that changes, interestingly enough, is, of course, if the other individual minorities band together to make it not be the case. Right, right. And, you know, uh, and I, I, I don't know whether or not that, you know, uh, that can work. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's, you know... It's- Is it a career that, that people want? I mean, that, that's a big thing, too, that culturally... Is government service seen as a good thing, depending upon where you come from? Is it, is it seen as, because in other countries, government can be so corrupt, and certainly it can be corrupt here, <laughs> yes. that, um, that it might not be seen as a virtuous thing to do? Like, why would you want to be in government? You can go be a doctor. Why would you want to be in government? I mean, honestly, why would you want to be in government? You could be a plumber. You know, like that regardless of the position, if it's viewed as being comparatively less than another job position, then certain qualified people will never want that job. Right. Well, you know, I mean... And then there's the nail analogy. Oh, geez. That, 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 I mean, that kind of dives into a whole, like, you know, ball of wax right there about, like, you know, like, uh, career perception. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, growing up the way I did, you know, um, I'm lucky that I didn't have parents that didn't hammer it into me that I need to become a doctor or a lawyer. Right. You know, um, lucky that I had family that, you know, allowed me to pursue my own happiness. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I know for a fact that most of the Asian kids that I grew up with were not, you know, given, you know, it was not that relaxed for them, you know, and they were like, you know, they... You know, whether it was their parents, you know, literally like, you know, like screaming it into them or, you know, maybe doing it on a subconscious level, mm-hmm. you, know, every, you know, all of them were driven, like, all, were, felt that, like, you know, the the path to honoring your family and to your own potential happiness is by landing a six-figure job, like a you know, a getting doctor attached to your name, mm. um, and two weeks it, vacation. Yeah, and and no, never, never was politician. Yeah. You know, on that like that list. Um, you know, and you know, and of course, you know, Americans in general are are kind of spoiled. Yeah. Right. I mean, I don't feel like I mean, like I I know I can speak a little bit more frankly for the Asian American perspective, but like you know, I you know the um. The fact that, like, you know, like, you know, like menial labor, such as, you know, working on a, in a farm or whatever, it's just, you know, n- not the kind of jobs Americans, Americans, you know, just he air quoted those, yeah, you know, want to want to do. And um, it's, um, you know, it we've seen that we've yeah. seen that in in areas where already where um the local law enforcement's been cooperating with ICE, which is, you know, immigration right. um, enforcement agency type of thing, mm-hmm. that um, that they're, they still have to bring people in to do the jobs, yeah. that nobody wants the jobs that, that were happened. being filled. In and it is a crisis. It's a crisis of employment. Well, it happened in Mississippi, like where I think there was a, a, part, a, part, a county in Mississippi where they literally, you know, scared out all the... Um, you know, 
non-documented uh, workers uh, um, or, or families, and they tried offering the jobs to you know um, American non you know to documented Americans and or to Americans lower citizens. income people with low, lesser yeah. education. Yes, and they were even willing to pay them upwards to fifteen dollars an hour, which you know is. I went far above the mini, uh, minimum, minimum wage, wage in, in Mississippi for sure, know, and um, they could not get people to stay. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, th- this has been across the country. This has yeah. been true. Yeah, that now getting people to stay at the job for more than one paycheck <laughs> has been difficult because they don't want to work out. I read about this recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the without getting too far down that line, I think that um, no, and it's fine. I think, and it speaks to a a bigger problem about what what issues are behind issues of diversity hmm. and mainly it's economic and there's the fear of losing one's place in society which i think is is the biggest motivator of people who don't embrace change they're afraid of change right and that fear causes them to act a certain way you know, I, I have no idea how people can actually consciously, like, proudly say that they are conservative. Because it just feels like they're saying, I am a man who, or a person who is afraid of change. I don't think those people are necessarily saying they're conservative. And I think that people who are actually are conservative are embarrassed by the way that these other people act. Mm. And they, they vote Republican. Right. But they're not conservatives. And I think that there's a big difference. And, you know, as I've got family in Massachusetts and I, I do have members of my family that, that voted for Trump because they had their one issue that they voted on. Right. But, um, you know, that they don't – we don't understand necessarily where we're at, um, how different communities enact laws to preserve the community. Mm-hmm. And whether it's a law that that – adversely affects a pocket of the population we don't know how that came to be like the thing about law is that it law is local first and then it's state second and then it's federal last right and i think that people who consider themselves conservatives they they say they don't like big government but then they love these weird laws that impact what your freedoms are which is bizarre to me right, but right. ostensibly they're like well i don't want the federal government telling me how to do blank Right. And that I feel like it should be a local issue. And a lot of smart politicians will steer clear of social issues by saying, you know, the federal government doesn't need to be litigating this. This can be a local issue. Mm -hmm. And then what you can do with that, when everybody moves out of Arkansas because they've got really weird laws that favor, you know, a couple of companies and the Mm -hmm. people who are still silly enough to vote for the the congressman that do the bidding of these companies, mm-hmm. there will be no tax collected mm-hmm. and there will be no way to power that state and that state will go bankrupt. Right. And in order to bring in new business, they're going to have to change their laws to catch up with the rest of the country. Right. And what happened, I think, in the last eight years in certain areas is that you had a federal government that wanted to bring up the standard overall, some states that didn't want to have the federal government telling them what to do and passing state laws that undermined the federal mandates that made sure everybody lost Mm. because it was so polarized. It was so divisive. Mm -hmm. And until if it's possible to get back to something a little bit more moderate, you know, at the top, Mm -hmm. then it may involve a little bit of state 
by state navel gazing. Hmm. What'll happen is that all the talented people are going to leave those states, and their numbers are going to—they're going to, you know, torpedo. Right. So, the places that will welcome the people that leave those states are going to be faced with the same problems that the states those people left had, hmm. which is a higher population of maybe too qualified people right. that are going to have to take lesser jobs mm-hmm. or a large influx of you know the scared undocumented worker that now are going to have to compete with each other and the um the the lowest economic rank of that area mm. and right. that's when the federal government has to get involved again it's kind of cyclical it's, it's almost impossible for it to to end right well yeah. and that's and it, based around what xenophobia Based around the fact that we've allowed, um, we've allowed separation based on skin color. There's still in government jobs, I think, that piece of paper that says, "Do you identify as?" Right. You know, and there's like eight or nine boxes that right. you can check off. Why would anybody check that box unless they thought it was going to give them favor? I don't know. But Why is it legal for them to even ask that anymore? You know, xenophobia, racism, whatever. I mean. These are apparently important tools to groups of people because it gives them a reason to rally together. Mm. I unfortunately, yeah, you know, um, it's um, I don't know. It's you know, it's it, actually this has gotten me. This is something that I've been thinking for uh, a while now, and I'm I'm happy to share this thought to you and. Mm-hmm. This is the thought basically is to believe in the social construct of race is inherently racist. Yes. You know? Yes. And um And that's again, you know, it's like, why would you check off the box? Mm-hmm. How come they can ask you to check off the box? Mm-hmm. It's it that stuff is I think that's the corner of the argument. You know, it, in order for us to be in a position where we can get more inclusive with absolute autonomy, mm-hmm. we need to have better education. Mm-hmm. We need to have election day be a federal holiday mm. so that everybody can get out and vote. Yes. And we need to make sure that gerrymandering stops. You know, that we have to break up areas of the state in a more fair way. Right. So that we're not shaping it like this cord that connects to, that's coiled up on the table here that connects to the, the microphone. That There are districts in, in different states that have, if you look at the shape of them on the map, you're like, how did that line get drawn? And it got drawn by racial yeah. bias. To, 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 to break off certain uh, groups. So, so know, they, they all keep... got one representative. Right. One. Right. And then the rest of the state got a whole bunch of others mm-hmm. that are in a different political party. And so they get to carry the governor's mansion and then, you know, they get to vote for president. And, you know, I would say that it's probably a good idea to get rid of the electoral college system. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to have a real majority rule, have a majority rule. Right. You know, the, I think that this past election, one of the reasons that the electoral college was set up was so that that type of thing didn't happen. You know, where you've got a three million yeah. person um, yeah. deficit in, in the election, electoral system. But I think that the, to summarize, I guess, mm-hmm. that I understand why this one movie, this one not 
terribly great movie, Ghost in the Shell, <laughs> became a cause because it was time. It might not have been the right movie for it, right. for this this amount of of rage to surface, mm-hmm. but it was time. Yeah. And this movie came along and it, and it absorbed it. And I think that the good news is that because it failed and because the studio actually blamed the whitewashing boycott for its failure, right. that now they're conscious of it, that they won't make that same mistake again. Well, what was also perfect was the fact that movies, art, a lot of these smaller art house movies like Moonlight, like, mm-hmm. you know... Um, Get Out. Yeah, Get Out, you know, have come in and proved that you do not need, quote-unquote, A-list celebrities yeah. to, you know, uh, you know, lead a film into and you know to quote unquote success yeah you know it's uh you know that you know a move that an american audience is sophisticated enough to recognize when something is good on the merits of writing talent and uh as long uh, as they're aware of it yes as long as they're aware of it and i mean and that becomes a whole other issue unto itself you know that there, there's probably not a lot of press being given to independent films because the space in newspapers for that is disappearing right and there's just so many people with opinions out there but you don't even really need that nowadays because all you you need more than anything is just the support of you know a few credible YouTube reviewers yeah you know so I mean like I mean it's unfortunate yeah but you know it is the truth you know if you get as Rotten Tomatoes says thumbs up then you know you're gonna get more people like you know going to it than you know an, a, a credible alien writer for the LA Times or LA Weekly, yeah. which is really sad. I love I the mixed metaphor of the tomato and the thumb up, by the way. <laughs> Two different rating systems, which is fine, which is fine. But the, um, we can do a whole show on, on whether or not Rotten Tomatoes is even valid anymore, but the, um, we won't. We're going to end it here. And I, I, I want to thank you for coming in on this because I thought that you're a really good person to address these. And it's very timely. Again, maybe we weren't the right people for this, but it was the right time. Oh, well, uh, thank you very <laughs> That's much what for we having, can, we can having me. And thank you for letting me rant about you know my Asian Rage. <laughs> we could call this episode Asian Rage. Asian Rage. No, I, I don't think we're going to call it that. <laughs> but I want to thank everybody for tuning in. And again, I, I welcome your feedback. I actually, part of what caused this this podcast was reaction to the last one that I got um, a lot of feedback, um, a lot of angry feedback, actually, about the, the last podcast on um, Marvel's War on Diversity. And there was a, a a person from Scotland who just was really upset that um, I uh, had an opinion about that. And it, it went back and forth for quite a bit, but it caused quite a stir, got a lot of attention on Facebook. And I, I do I do welcome that feedback. As long as it's respectful, I have I absolutely welcome anybody who has a differing opinion to mm-hmm. to bring that to the conversation because that's what a conversation is. It's a joining of ideas. But um, if people do come out and they start trolling and they start getting really insulting and and um, you know say you know crazy or, or crazy is the wrong word, but incredibly false or hurtful things. I'm absolutely going to to ban yeah. those comments from my Facebook page. There's a difference between constructive, uh, constructively, you know, 
engagement, yeah. Enga- engaging, and then you know, and then uh, versus just you know being a dick, right? You know, so so no no dickery, no dickery at all. And with those words, we will leave you. So tune in, tune in again uh, every Sunday. Uh, Pod sequentials of Miami host Matt Kennedy, and uh, we'll 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 be speaking for you soon. That was a fun. Episode. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism, and um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.